at MIT, I have the privilege of sort of like really shaping people's mindset around that at the beginning of their career. And I think if there's anything I hope that I do, I, I hope that I sort of normalize the fact that it's okay. You know, it's okay if you don't know where you're going to be in five years. Like that's the norm. Um, and I, I again, I, I really believe that that's where our whole sort of society is going. But I think that we're still in a point where that's a new idea for a lot of people. And even if they're like me, they sort of like get these instincts that like, wow, I don't think I want to have this sort of like, you know, one dimensional career where I stay at the same place or in the same industry. Um, it can be really hard to, to wrap your head around admitting that and then actually, especially doing something about that. Um, so it's definitely better to be open to it than to, than to be miserable. What up? It's Zach from Boston Speaks Up. That was Carly Chase, today's guest. I really think you're going to love this conversation. Uh, Carly wears a bunch of hats at MIT, and including one where she helps build a bridge between Boston and New York's innovation economies. She's had a super interesting career. She started out at Goldman Sachs. She spent time working for Michael Bloomberg, New York City mayor, uh, and specifically worked for the New York City uh, Economic Development Corporation. She spent some time at, as an operator of, of a startup out of New York, Pivot Desk, and you know now, and what she'll spend a lot of time on the podcast doing is, is sort of sharing with folks the, the various hats she wears at MIT. So looking forward to sharing the conversation with everyone. As always, feel free to hit me up, Zach at fabricmedia.net with any suggestions, tips, or just want to say hello. Thanks for listening. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Carly Chase from the MIT Martin Trust Center. What's up, Carly? How are you? I'm good. How are you, Zach? Doing well, thank you. On this fine February day where we're... We've gotten some snow recently here in Boston, but if it's if it's anything like the last couple of winters, and it seems like it might be, knock on wood, um, I'm pretty happy with the uh, with the snow totals so, so far this year. How about you? Yeah, it is uh, it is a a high snow total in New York City, which is I think a pleasant reprieve for everybody. It's usually usually a big complaint in New York, but I think it's a welcome change given given nobody's uh, inconvenienced in the same way for the most part, or many, many aren't inconvenienced, I should say. Yeah, we can't change much around us. Why not, why not change <laughs> up the, uh, the outdoor backdrop a little bit? A little, exactly. A little, with a little beauty, a little white snow. Exactly. So, um, so for listeners, I'll just, I, I want to allow you, Carly, to kind of give background, but just for listeners, um, Carly wears many different hats at MIT. Um, I actually got connected to Carly through David Beck, who's a, been a business partner, business cohort of mine for several years, sort of in the TV and media world. And he, he saw what I was doing. Boston speaks up. He's like, Oh, you got to meet Carly. She's doing amazing things at MIT. She's creating this really cool bridge between Boston and New York through MIT. And 
as I can as I've come to learn, like, and I'm looking forward to learning more. You know, he, he spent time working for Mayor Bloomberg and in New York City and and on some really interesting economic development programs for New York City. So yeah. you're you're particularly well suited um, to help create like a more harmonious sort of innovation economy sort of bridge between Boston and New York. And I love like when we met last year, thanks for having me at the Martin yeah. Trust Center. Um, what, what really struck me was just, I love, you know, your ad, like your attitude toward like, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, like the Boston, New York rivalry, but it's like a lot cooler and more fun when we're like, you know, working together and I couldn't agree more. And so I'm really looking forward to kind of learning about that and sharing with folks in, um, in sort of the entrepreneurial community in Boston, how, you know, how MIT, uh, in particular, the Martin trust center and, um, you know, Delta V accelerator is sort of building, um, that bridge between Boston and New York. So looking forward to hearing about that, but, um, and we're going to go back into time. We're going to talk about the idyllic childhood you had in (laughs) actual Western mass, um, not like, not like Worcester Western mass, but like way out there. Uh, but, But for starters, why don't you give a little background just on your sort of your role or, or, or the various hats you wear today for, for MIT. And then I can kind of guide us back, back in time a bit. Yeah, no, that sounds good. And, and thanks for having me. And um, uh, thanks for reminding me how we met David. Um, David is a really amazing person and, and we actually got to catch up last week. And, uh, you know, in the work that we do at MIT, we, uh, we do so much and I wear so many hats because we strive to do so much and we're really enabled to be able to fulfill our mission because we, as a very small, you know, typically 10 to 12 person team at the Trust Center, really count our alumni and friends as an extension of us. And that's really what enables us to get things done in the way that we do. So it's, it's really people like David who, um, are vital to, to helping us meet our mission. Um, so thank you for that reminder. And um, yeah, so yeah, so so my role at the Trust Center, I'm one of a few entrepreneurs and residents, which is a recurring sort of role at the Trust Center that's um, I think been around for at least ten years since Bill Allett, um took over running the Trust Center. Who's the managing director? Uh, I'm also a senior lecturer at the Sloan School of Management. Uh, and really what entrepreneurs and residents do on a daily basis is work with our customers, which are our current students. And what we do, sort of the, the meat of our job is to coach student entrepreneurs, to teach student entrepreneurs, to run programs for them. Um, but I think the really important thing to note and one of my favorite things about our mission at the Trust Center and why I've, I've chosen to spend so much time there in my career is because of the way we define entrepreneurship and and ultimately the way we define entrepreneurs. And to us, entrepreneurs are people that have that venture building skill set and that that what we call anti-fragile mindset. And of course, those folks are really uh, the people that we know and love who are founders and start startups. But we think that you know the the skill set of Knowing who your customer is, uh, methodically building a product for those customers, you know, and then being really intentional and purposeful about how you launch that into the market. And, um, subsequently that attitude of being able to navigate and a lot of ambiguity to be thriving amongst a really chaotic environment. We think we need those individuals who have that skill set and mindset 
not just to be starting companies, but given sort of the state of the world that we're all living in today, I don't think there's any more illustrative time of, of why this is so important. We need entrepreneurs um, to be in every facet in society. We need them to be change makers in corporate settings so that, that corporates can, right? Like think about the work that Pfizer was able to do because they were agile and because they knew how to work with smaller companies to build the vaccine that so many of us are, are hoping to take over the next few months. Um, to, to meet climate change goals, to, um, to continue to adapt and, and serve, uh, us all across society and all different sorts of sectors. We, I used to work in government, as you've already alluded to. I really think we need our entrepreneurs to, to go into government and serve there. Um, and, you know, I even say right now, I mean, look how entrepreneurial our medical professionals have to be, right? It's, it would be a disservice only to count on entrepreneurs or ask them to be startup founders. We really, um, implore and encourage our students to take that skill set and mindset and think about it as a lifelong, I guess, um, you know, benefit and lifelong, uh, lifelong sort of endeavor and take that with them, whatever setting that they end up going into. And obviously we're really lucky at the trust center to have MIT as our platform because MIT's, uh, you know, they implore everybody at MIT to go solve those enormous challenges. And again, we think that, you know, startup founders alone can't go solve climate change. We need the, we need the cooperation of so many in the ecosystem and the more entrepreneurs in the ecosystem, hopefully the more cohesive and, and successful we'll all be in solving those challenges. That's awesome. Would would you say that the trust center has had that focus since you arrived, or has that changed a bit in recent, you know, last couple of years to be a little bit more horizontal and focus and sort of like finding ways to nurture and you know, shepherd the next generation of entrepreneurs into all aspects of private and public sector and in particular sort of like more civic oriented sort of, um, you know, government settings. And I know you mentioned like healthcare yeah. and industry, but is that, is that just been the focus for a while or do you think things have changed in the world or highlighted issues in the world in recent years that have kind of compelled you all to sort of, re yeah. you know, renew or double down on that focus? Yeah, that's a good question. I think so. I joined the Trust Center um, in the middle of 2017, and there were definitely seedlings there. But we were we and we still are today. By the way, very startup founder focused because you know that's that's um, that's always going to be the core of what we do. Uh, and we obviously, I think, the percentage of students who are looking to become founders or learn how to be founders when they go to a university, whether at the undergrad or the grad level, um, I think has just like grown astronomically. Actually, even in the four years I've been at the Trust Center. Um, so that's always going to be a core to what we do. But yeah, we, I think the big difference for us is, um, you know, Bill really led this effort and he started to talk about this anti-fragile mindset and how useful that is in, in, of course, startup culture, but really how important that is um, beyond. And I really just gravitated towards that message. I think when he told me that for the first time and sort of explained his expanded definition of entrepreneur, that entrepreneur does not just equal startup founder. You know, I'll be honest, that resonated with me personally because, because I really did think to my days in government in particular and say, yeah, like that is exactly how I felt. I had to be entrepreneurial. I didn't have a vocabulary for what I was doing or how I was doing my work, but I was, you know, whether it's, uh, being a little bit more agile and figuring out how to get, you know, your contract signed and your bills paid, you know, and, and waiting through this sort of like bureaucratic structure. 
uh, or just being able to get things done. I mean, you have to have that entrepreneurial attitude. You have to, you know, you have to be able to thrive in, in chaotic environments. I mean, I was in government during Hurricane Sandy um, and, and other really big moments for, for New York. And it, I mean, on, you know, government is a, is a pretty chaotic environment for a lot of folks. Um, so I think that the seedlings were there. I think it got amplified sort of maybe a year into me being at the trust center. And then I think after COVID, definitely a renewed, um, a renewed viewpoint at how that entrepreneurial mindset was so crucial for us all. We actually did, um, Bill did a, led a, um, a speaker series really quickly into COVID. I think we had it up by April 1st. Uh, and we did a multi-part speaker series. I think there's six or eight sessions, um, just on how anti-fragility helps in all these different sort of segments of society. It's, it's really awesome and, and still lives on our website for folks who want to check it out. And then I think just to, to sort of lastly touch on your question about the civic sector. I mean, I think, I think I have a, I'm super partial to, to that just because I had spent time in government and I'm just a really, I think the civic environment is so important. It's sort of um, undervalued from a career perspective. Um, and I just think given the complexities we all have and, and sort of, you know, certainly the, the era of federal government we all just lived through, um, you know, we, we need great people in government and we need entrepreneurs because the challenges we're all facing collectively are enormous and, and government is always going to have a seat at that table. It's, it's really hard to do it without them. Awesome. So that, that, beg, that begs like a follow-up question, which is sort of around like for folks listening and we have, we have folks that list, like we've, we've had mayors on, we've had Suffolk yeah. County, Suffolk County district attorney, um, Rachel Rollins on, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs on, so we'll have like venture, you know, venture capitalists and young entrepreneurs. And, and so I think we have a pretty good breadth of, of, of audience and for that breadth of audience that you, that I'm teasing out and that you might imagine, yeah. what are the different ways that they can interact with participate in, uh, Mart the Martin trust center? Like, is, is there, are there ways like in an, obviously beginning with student, um, but what are the ways mm -hmm. the trust center is sort of available or what would be like, what's a call to action, if you will, for, for folks, if they do want to learn more, um, volunteer, you know, like, evaluate programs, like what, you know, what, what sort of, um, and then also from like, for folks that maybe work in local politics, like what's the mm -hmm. call to action to their, you know, local rep, like, you know, what are the different ways that, that folks can sort of, um, join or sort of participate in or, or do things sort of adjacent to, or in alignment with, uh, the trust center? Yeah, I think I would sort of answer that question in terms of how we look at our mission. I mean, our our platform and our our sort of resources allow us to really work with our current students. And again, that, you know, we think as a customer-centric, you know, we teach customer-centric frameworks because um, we teach, uh, you know, how to start a, a business. Um, and we really try to eat our own dog food in that respect. And so our, our core customers, our students are always going to be the first folks that we always, um, the primary folks we, um, you know, we think of. And so, but, but what we really want to do is we want to take all the frameworks we create and the content that we create. That's why we did, for instance, the anti-fragile speaker series. And we want to be an example and really a petri dish for entrepreneurship education, um, to be able to export it really around the world. And again, like MIT is such a valuable sort of platform and asset for us to be able to even give us a, a chance at doing that. So I think, you know, number one, um, supporting our students is, is always welcomed, um, whether that means, uh, you know, through us or, or just getting involved in, 
of course, funding entrepreneurs from MIT, um, supporting entrepreneurs from MIT, whatever that sort of means to you and, and what, um, whatever value you can sort of provide and just encouraging the entrepreneurial ecosystem. I think there's a lot of excitement in society, but obviously still so many barriers to entry. I mean, I think if you're in government, I used to spend a lot of time thinking about this about 10 years ago, and it certainly still needs to be thought of. But, you know, what are the challenges for entrepreneurs? What are the different, you know, legislative or regulatory or um, or just sort of, you know, what are the barriers to, to entrepreneurs being successful in, in a city like Boston or a city in New York? And how can government or industry sort of support um, in those efforts? For instance, at the Bloomberg administration, I focused a lot on commercial real estate not super sexy, but if you're a startup and you're being asked to sign a five or 10 year lease by a landlord, that's, that doesn't, that's kind of a mismatch. Um, so, so even thinking about um, specific and granular things like that. And then if you are um, somebody who is looking to, to bring more entrepreneurship into your organization, whether you're a corporate organization or government or, um, or whatever, you know, definitely leveraging our framework, leveraging our content is something that we're hoping that folks do and, and folks already do around the world. We spend a lot of time with other educational institutions, organizations. We have a corporate membership program that I actually run. Um, so, so just sort of letting us export our stuff to you is something we love to do. And whether that means um, just sort of leveraging what's on our website or figuring out how to have a more formal partnership with us through our membership program, um, you know, that really that really is something we strive to do. That's great. Really appreciate that. Um, so it's interesting. You're this entrepreneurship leader, like I, I you know, leader like locally <laughs> or you're, um, how are things in Brooklyn, by the way? So you live in New York, you tend to go back and forth. And so have you, yeah. you've been more or less just, just kind of holding it down in, in Brooklyn during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, I um, I feel so, you know, so lucky to have sort of been introduced to entrepreneurship and the startup ecosystem. You know, as a part of government, I really got an introduction, I'd say, to an ecosystem in a really top-down way. And then, you know, on the flip side, um, ended up operating within the startup ecosystem and continue to today, even though I, I spent a lot of time in the academic world. Um, so, you know, I think that top-down and bottoms-up perspective from an ecosystem has has given me a really interesting um, sort of angle on it. And uh, and then adding Boston to the picture, which as you already mentioned, I grew up in um, Western Massachusetts. I always thought I would <laughs> live in Boston at some point in my adult life and, and have not to date. Um, and that's been just like a really special opportunity for me to get to um, spend time in Boston, really learn the ecosystem um, and the city really as an adult. Um, but I feel incredibly fortunate to, to call Brooklyn home. And it, it is this, um, you know, Brooklyn's an entrepreneurial place that always has been. Um, and I think that the exciting and sort of silver linings of this pandemic, um, you know, there's so much hardship and, and hurt that's going on right now, but I really see opportunities, you know, for entrepreneurs coming out of this, whether that means, you know, you're, you're a sort of, you know, real innovation driven entrepreneur, meaning you're going to create scale with your business, probably through sort of the venture capital ecosystem, or you're somebody who's going to be able to start a small business because retail rents went down. Um, like I'm very excited as somebody who lives in Brooklyn to see sort of the creativity post pandemic. Um, so, you know, we're certainly not through this yet, but I think that there's going to be a lot of really interesting opportunity on the other side that I'm really excited to, to have a front row seat to, based in, you know, where I live and, and definitely also where I work. 
I would agree. Um, I love that. And I'm of a similar optimistic mindset. And obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of pain that folks have endured over the past year, whether it's been family members sick and, and, and maybe in some cases, unfortunately passing or losing jobs. And, and, and there's all sorts, I mean, there's certainly it's, it has not been easy. Um, yeah. but, but it is, you know, these are precious moments in life. These are precious breaths that we have. We do not get time back. And I am of the mindset that this time we have is, you know, we have to look at it as a gift. And so like, what can yep. you do from, you know, I, I like to call my life. I just, I define my life, which is, you know, working each day from home and having dinner every night with my wife and daughter and walking my dog three days, three times a day. And then, you know, working out and eating healthy, like that's my beautifully simple life in the pandemic yeah. and then developing really strong habits because, you know, there's this saying that goes like, you don't, you know, you, you can make, you, you can kind of make your luck. I, I don't know how to say it. You can, you can put yourself in a position to make your luck. Like, people, you know, like yeah. you have to be ready, you know, you have to set intentions and you have to be in a, in a position to realize opportunity when it comes your way. And certainly right now is, is sort of like, I think a preparatory time, um, yep. for folks to be ready for like what, you know, what the world, the world will look different. Um, world always will look different and it's sort of a lot of the innovation curves and you can go across industries are all rapidly shifting. You know, I work in TV and media and Mm -hmm. more people cut the cord in the last year than they ever have. So the velocity of people, you know, just buying a a Vizio and out of the box, just streaming free ad supported television is up. You know, I think, 20, 30% year over year. Like there's just, you go in any industry and you just find these like trends where things are moving quickly. And so, you know, build good, healthy personal habits and then consider some of those like trends and those curves of, of acceleration and market and, and, and find ways with what stokes your fire and makes you happy. Like you can be in a position to, you know, benefit from, the abundance of new opportunities and there, there are now and will continue to be plenty that exists in the world. And, you know, you, you hit on something in the pre podcast Q and a that I absolutely love and I couldn't agree with mm-hmm. more. We are of a generation. I mean, we like, you know, if you're in your twenties or thirties, um, right now, and, and you probably could even say folks in their forties, even we're not going to work the same job and, and the same skill yeah. set, like, Certainly, like we can have certain soft skills that afford us, you know, certain opportunities in, in certain areas. But the hard skills we need to develop and the types of roles that we'll need to play, like we need to be chameleon, and, you know, and we mm-hmm. and we really need to, you know, modify. And you know, our, our you know, Carly Chase's resume and Zach Rudio's resume, fifteen twenty years from now, it's going to have a lot of interesting different things in it. And if we if we do things right. You know what we did in in different you know three four five year periods will be reflective of some of the shifts in the marketplace that where opportunities were, and so I think yeah. in that I think in that you know in that world I mean it, it screams like okay like 
Therefore, we have to have more agility around education, right? We have to have yep. more flexibility around the pathways we offer to people to understand, you know, what the entrepreneurship, what entrepreneurship is. And I like your sort of broad lens. You see that through. So what I'd like to like, so what's interesting and like using you as a microcosm, which is similar to me, like similar to me, like I, yeah. I didn't grow up as far away from Boston as you. I was like 30 miles away in Methuen, yeah. but I, I didn't know that Boston was a tech city. I didn't know the word. Like I didn't like entrepreneurship may not have been a word ever spoken to me in a class in high school. And, you know, so what's interesting is you're this entrepreneurship leader and you're responsible for a pretty significant like bridge between Boston and New York innovation economies. And yet you grew up in Western mass and never and had no sort of exposure to the Boston innovation economy. Yeah. So can you sort of ex- like describe, like, like go back in time, like describe your childhood, yeah. like paint that picture and like, you know, talk about that lens as, as it, as it increasingly widened in your life, which eventually led you to the opportunities that put you where you are today. Yeah, for sure. And and even before I'll do that, I'll just sort of um, build on on what you're saying in terms of career. Cool. And and I, I did decide to start a company a few years ago with um, with a friend who we met um, in the startup ecosystem in New York. And and it's called Crabwalk, and it's it's a career um, coaching and education company. And what we really try to teach people are the skills to own your career. And why is that important? It's because there is no, you know, ladder simply to, to move up anymore. You don't go to school, get a skill, and and be on autopilot for the rest of your career, which I frankly was was trained throughout my childhood, which I'll get to in a second, to to assume that that's what happened. Um, and so when you realize whatever moment that is in your career or your life that that's not really the way things are, and I think that more and more people are waking up to that every single day, and I think that's really going to be sort of a big shift. Um, especially for, for millennials and, and, um, Gen X over like the next 10 years in particular. Like if you haven't made that realization, my, my bet is that you'll make it sometime in, in before 2030. Um, and the pain associated with that is we've really never been taught the skills to successfully manage a career path that doesn't simply move up the ladder. Like that's, there are no courses or skill sets or really even conversation about that. Like it's not a, we're all doing it, but it's not really a normalized thing to talk about. And I really believe that that's an extra painful thing, especially in, you know, I can definitely say in a place like New York or Boston or really the United States, because I think our personal identities are so entrenched in our professional identities. And so if you went to school to be a lawyer and you did all the right things or you started your career at Goldman Sachs like I did, and then all of a sudden wake up and say, like, I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life, that can be a really hard pill to swallow and a really hard sort of personal and professional thing to navigate, right? It's it's not even just the professional nature of navigating. It's the like, how do I when I left Goldman Sachs at 26 and told my parents that like that was not uh, that was not a welcome conversation, right? right. <laughs> I'm just gonna right. get off this ladder. Um, and so sort of sort of go back to your question though, which I guess brings me to to sort of the way I grew up. I um I grew up in a small town in Western Massachusetts, the Springfield part of Massachusetts, not the western part. Um, and you know, actually it, it was a nice, uh, in between Boston and New York. I was about, I'm about two and a half hours from New York, um, and one and one and change close to one and a half from Boston. So I was really lucky to sort of be able to have exposure to both cities when I was growing up. Um, 
it, which was great. Um, and uh, and I had two parents, like I had a very close, typical nuclear family. I had two parents who worked, two parents who were in the same careers their entire life. My mom is a speech pathologist and worked in a few different school systems, but always was, you know, always was in a school system, had the same type of job. Um, and my dad uh, is, is pretty entrepreneurial, started as an accountant and built out his own financial um planning business, but always, you know, always in Western Massachusetts, always sort of had the same uh, office address, even even when he was sort of shifting in his career. And like, and all my friends' parents were doctors or lawyers or, you know, some small business owners like owning real estate or, or owning, um, you know, different sort of family businesses. But everybody kind of did the same thing their whole career. I don't remember any sort of change really happening professionally that that was discussed. Um, and that's, that's how I thought, you know, I was going to design my career. And so I went to a liberal arts college. Um, I went to Skidmore College in, in Saratoga, New York, which was a fantastic experience. And I absolutely loved it. And, um, you know, I was that kid who was like ready to be an adult at age 12. I like, I kind of, I like wanted my parents to move to Boston. I was ready to like, you know, as soon as I got my license, I was like sneaking into to Boston. Um, I even figured out how to be on... The Massachusetts Board of Education has this really interesting program. I hope they still have it today, but they actually have students, um, student advisors. And I was one of them. So like as soon as I hit 16, like I was going to Malden once a month for a meeting. Like I was really like ready to grow up pretty quickly, nice. even though I, I loved my childhood. Um, and so, and you know, I even, my mom tells this great story about how I came to her one day with like working papers at age 15 and was like, I got a job, please find me. Um, so I was just, I was like very ready to grow up. And um and so when I went to college, I was like, cool, all I have to do is get, you know, I got to get a job at a top brand. What I knew was I knew about business because my dad was in, you know, finance. And um, I had a personal sort of passion from an early age too in politics and government. Like I was just very drawn to the public sector. I was very drawn to the political landscape. Um, so I sort of knew I wanted to be in probably New York or DC um, because those were those, those were where those two industries lied. And, um, and I, you know, Skidmore is not a theater school to Goldman Sachs. Um, so I had to work pretty hard and, and try to figure out, like, I remember my freshman year trying to understand, like, okay, I know what wealth management is, but like, what is investment banking? Like, mm. what is trading? Like, I just, I didn't even, I didn't have vocabulary for any of this. So my first sort of... It was Skidmore, um, and sorry to interrupt, but it was Skidmore. Yeah, no. I don't know Skidmore too well. Like, is it, is it a yeah. liberal arts school? It is. Yeah, yeah, it's a liberal okay. arts school. And where, and where is it? It's in Saratoga Springs, New York, so closer to okay. Albany. Got it. Okay. Great, cool. a fantastic college town. It's um, it's really famous for for horse racing. So they have an am- amazing sort of like cultural infrastructure just for the month of August when when um the racing season is really big, and then sort of all the Skidmore students really benefit from that infrastructure the rest of the year. Oh, um, cool. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful sort of college town. Um, really awesome place. And and that was even hard for me. Like I was really ready to uh to like go to NYU or BU. My dad actually went to BU and he was like, You're like I you know, that is you might as well kind of in his opinion. He's like, I'd rather you go to UMass, you know, and save me a bunch of money than than uh than go to sort of the city. Like you can do that in the summer. Like go have a great educational experience. I was always a kid who did really well in leadership and getting to know my teachers. And so my parents really did know better than I did that I, I needed sort of that that small and communal feel as opposed to being in a big lecture hall. Um, I went to be like so, your father. Go, go Terriers. Yeah. <laughs> so did my cousin. So did my, uh, so did my uh, uncle. Like we have a big BU family. Um, nice. And, and, then uh, half, and then half of New Jersey and New York. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time, you know, really early on, luckily in college, sort of like prioritizing my career and prioritizing figuring out what professional opportunities were even available to me within sort of the areas I was interested in. Um, and I was, I was lucky enough to be sort of taught by my father, how to network without him sort of saying the word, just sort of saying, Hey, there's all these alumni in this database. You should just go talk to them and have coffee and learn about what their jobs are and, and build relationships really. And, um, you know, ironically enough, sort of that, that whole experience is, is uh, lends back to, to the small business crab walk that I have. Um, but anyways, so I had met all these alumni. There happened to be one that worked at Goldman Sachs. He, um, was 26 at the time, which is really wild to me, but he's the one who really made the connection. Um, and I was the only Skidmore student in the summer analyst program. And I was lucky enough um, to do it early enough that I actually ended up at Goldman the summer before my junior year. Nice. Um, now I want to double click on this for a moment yeah, because you yeah. hit on something which is so common and, and, and it's you networked with someone who went to Skidmore that had a connection to Goldman. As you mentioned earlier, Goldman wasn't a feeder to, uh, sorry, Skidmore no. wasn't a feeder to <laughs> Goldman. Um, right. That, cause I have, I have a very similar story where like, I almost took some really bizarre jobs out of BU. And I was like, <laughs> I, and, and, and you would think in Boston university has like, you know, it was a top five communication school and I was trying to get a job at like right. a, at an agency. And there was like, Sorry, BU, but there was like there was like no help for me getting a job at an agency. So I literally like yeah. my uncle who like delivers mail for USPS, like great blue collar dude, my godfather. He's like, oh my buddy, my buddy Sully's got um got a friend who works at this company, Schwartz Communications. Like I'll tell him to r- refer you. And they literally had never met me before, and just because it was like a buddy of my uncle's. All of a sudden, someone someone over at Schwartz was like, "Oh, I get a referral bonus if I refer this kid and he gets the job," and they just <laughs> yeah. threw me on the list. And I jumped, and then boom! I and like, of course, I had to show up for the interview and be, you know, charming yeah. and competent. But exactly. you know, it's just, it's really, it, it, it I rare like, I very rarely find people who share with me stories where like schools place them in jobs. Um, and then, right. you know, BU right. used to have these like super sad job fairs that, that I would go to. And I was like, <laughs> and, and, and unless you were like an engineer, like I was like, well, I'm not an engineer, so this isn't really for me. Um, so anyways, I just want to yeah. like that. So it sounds like that's your experience, right? Like, Oh, wow. Like yeah, by chance you met this alumni and it really hooked you up and set you on this, this track. Yeah. Yeah. And by chance, you know, by chance he worked at Goldman Sachs, but not by chance that I put in that work to, to make sure I got to meet him. And that's what, you know, that's what I tell students. I advise MIT, you know, wherever I meet people all the time. Um, I mentor a ton of, a ton of young people. And, um, you know, it's, I think people sometimes think leveraging relationships is like a dirty thing and it's unfair and they need to go through like the typical process. And the secret is that's not how the world works. You know, nope. the world, the world built, the world, uh, runs on relationships and it doesn't mean that like you said you still have to go in and like do a kick-ass job and if you yeah. don't like forget it i mean i was at goldman sachs if i didn't do a great job i wasn't gonna survive there um but you really do need people to to help you not only sort of enter those organizations but in my case even help me you know have the vocabulary and navigate like what is this place what are these divisions you know what is this job like so you can figure out um you know, so you're not just entering arbitrarily, you're actually entering into a place and a job in particular that you can succeed in. Right. And, um, and I think that I think when I see how recruiting goes today, and all these amazing sort of like software companies that are trying to not only create a lot more unbiased hiring practices, which is 
so needed, but also really match people, you know, from their skill sets to their job. Like it was an environment at Goldman that it was like, oh, you went to Princeton, great, you get to go to investment banking. You know, oh, you you went to Skidmore, you're gonna like end up in the back office. Right. Um, and it, uh, you know, that we, I think, I think honestly, like startup culture um, and and um, an engineering culture in particular really sort of helped um, kind of knock down those those really odd and but like anarch, you know. Um, uh, archaic like structures that sort of yeah. existed in the big companies. If I could add to that too, like or sort of what you're hinting at, which is uh, the way I put it, because I, I do some mentoring myself and I'm like vi- visiting entrepreneur resident in residence at Endicott College. And mm-hmm. I always tell like students I work with, I like express your intentions with repetition and frequency. Like, yeah. like express like and and not and and be be okay being vulnerable to channel my Brene yep. Brown. Like everyone should yep. you know, embrace your vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. I love Brene. Like my wife and I have her parenting manifesto on our daughter's playroom. Uh, but, yeah. but like, just, just be, you know, like acknowledge you don't have the answers, but like express the intentions in the narrative you currently have as to what you believe, yep. you know, and what you desire and like express that in the directions of the people that you come into contact with. And yep. And so it's like, so then when you meet that person that has a connection to Goldman Sachs, like, yeah, you've put in the work. It's like the work we're putting right now during the pandemic, like put in the work right now so that when you're networking with people, IRL, as the kids would say on the other side of the (laughs) pandemic, like you, you know, like you'll be at the underscore VC, you know, core community summit next fall or this fall, hopefully, you know, we're good by the fall Mm -hmm. and you're expressing those intentions, you know, 15, 16, 17 different ways. And then boom, like, cause that, and then one or two folks are like, Oh, here's how we can do something together. I mean, that's how Boston speaks up happened. That's how Silicon yeah. Valley bank became a sponsor. Like that actually all shout out the underscore VC, like a bunch of me just like talking about intentions for what this, you know, podcast sort of platform is, you know, with repetition frequency, just turned into like, folks being like, Oh, like I gravitate to that idea or I can help with that idea. And boom, then you, and you just build off of that. But you, you have to, you have to be willing to put yourself out there. You have to spend some time like putting thought into like what you really want. And yeah, yeah you, you have to not be afraid. Uh, and you have to be confident to go and, you know, like, communicate with people and communicate with new people and not be afraid to ask. Like if you identify that someone can help you ask for help, like you miss like a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, like take some shots. Yeah. 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 And like, and just even bring it back to sort of the the core of what we were talking about in entrepreneurship. Like this is what I mean by this entrepreneurial skill set and mindset being applicable in all different ways in life. Right. Like when you think about what founders need to be great at, they need to be great at pitching. They need to be great at communication. They need to be great at asking for help. And so when you think about sort of where else we all need to be able to leverage that skill set and mindset, I mean, that, that's what I mean about the applicability of, of that. Um, and, and yeah, I just, I can't agree more with everything you're saying. I mean, it, to us, uh, or to me, luck is really that, that, that intersection of opportunity and preparedness and, um, and you got to be prepared, right? And you, you got to, I mean, communication and pitching yourself is just, um, it's a painful thing for a lot of people, but it's, it's something that gets so much easier with practice. Um, but you've got to be willing to ask for help. You got to ask people to practice with you. You've got to ask, um, you got to eventually be willing to get out there and actually do the asking for help. Um, right. and that is, that's a skill of the future. You know, that is, that is a yeah. skill that's only gaining and value, not, not the other way around. 
Yeah. Well, we, as one of our, I think several follow-up items that we'll have one is I'd love to learn <laughs> a little more about crab walk and potentially like, I feel like we're of similar mindset and, and, and kind of, um, interest in helping nurture like young talent. So maybe there's, yeah. maybe there's a, maybe there's a, um, an opportunity there to collaborate, but, but I, but I, no, I, I mean, you're, you're just in, I'm like playing back a lot of what you're saying and you're just, you know, you're, <laughs> you're reaffirming for me some things I thought, but I'm also just like playing it back out to you. Cause I'm, I'm sort of inspired at the, the nonlinear path, um, as you described yeah. it in the pre-pod Q and a that you've taken, which I believe is, it's, it's a fun and worthwhile way to, to take on, you know, to approach, approach life. Like, don't just be fixed yeah. in like the role that you're in. And actually like, I mean, feel free to play off that, but I, I yeah. I'd love for you to share a little bit about like how you then like, all right. So you go and tell yeah, your parents well, like, Hey, Goldman yeah. Sachs, not for <laughs> me, but you like what, from there. And like, how'd you get involved with New York city and Mayor Bloomberg yeah. and like what, and what, and then what that entailed. And again, just the widening of the lens that you could kind of see the world through. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a really good way to put it. That's kind of exactly what happened to me. So I, you know, I, I got in the door at Goldman. I actually got the call that I was getting my, my internship, like on my 20th birthday. And it was like the best. And I, you know, in my head, I was like, I, the hardest part's over. Like for me, I thought the hardest part was going to get my foot in the door. Like I knew once I got there, I would outwork everybody. Uh, you know, I could outwork anybody. I could do a great job. Like I was the kind of person that really believed in just like putting your head down and doing a great job and things will come. And they did for me at Golden. Like I was incredibly successful. I had two summers there. I ended up doing um, sort of an internship even over semester. Like I, I knew how to stay close. You know, I knew how to sort of like get that job once I was in there. Um, I built great relationships. But I, um, so that internship was in 2006. And then I, um, I graduated in 2008. And so I was, I was a very lucky person to have a job. But I got to, um, you know, my desk, I think I was in the, the analyst program starting in July of 2008. I got to my desk like Labor Day 2008 and two weeks later was like the craziest experience of my life. Just seeing the entire sort of organization fall apart. And that was the best lesson I really could have learned so early in my life. Just seeing people, you know, not based on merit, but because of how expensive they were and the amount of years they were there just get laid off. And, you know, that's where I really, number one, um, something that still sticks with me today, you know, 13 years later is you've always got to be adding value. Mm -hmm. And I'm obsessed with creating value wherever I go. And it's really because I saw a lot of people who created a lot of value probably like at that time in the 80s or 90s and then just sort of like stuck around because they were on autopilot. Right? Put in cruise control. A great, yeah, it was a great yeah. paycheck and it was a great brand. And, you know, they had their routines down and, uh, and so that was kind of the moment I also learned, you know, coming from the childhood I did where I did see everybody sort of have the same job or the same profession their whole life. I was like, oh, just because you're loyal to a company does not mean they're going to be loyal to you. And that was a new concept to me. Like I thought, right. you know, I was at Goldman. I got in. I did a good job. Like I'd always have a job. And, and yeah. I... If I, I choose so to, I can be here for three decades. Right. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's not really in my control. And I, I can't be on right. autopilot. I've got to take some more control, um, which, you know, was, was a shock and kind of it really made me rethink my entire strategy. So, you know, I ended up staying for four years after 2008. I did really well there, but I sort of had all of these um, like inklings for things that just didn't feel right. And, you know, one of them was that 
finance, like Goldman Sachs in 2006, if I was choosing between an internship between like Goldman Sachs and Google, like Goldman was a stronger brand in that moment. Mm. And all of a sudden finance was sort of a super vilified thing, like a couple of years into me being there. And so I was like, well, this isn't the best, you know, this is the only place I can be. I can go to, there's other great brands now in other sectors really emerging. The rise of the fangs. You got Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, It it was really crazy. Yeah, Yeah. It changed so fast. And you know, they, all of a sudden Goldman was having some talent problems and, and there were these like cultural sort of things that really bothered me. Um, like I was in a, I was really lucky. I was in like a small women's round table with one of the partners of Goldman. And she was talking about how, you know, we really, even though we had blackberries, we really needed to be part of that cultural experience of Goldman Sachs where you're there at 2 a.m. with your colleagues. Like that's how you build relationships. And I was like, I'm sorry. Oh, like you're wrong. <laughs> like we have yeah. blackberries. You didn't. And I'm really sorry about that. Like you had to be here to answer the phone at two in the morning, but that is not what this generation's about. And that's not, I really didn't believe that's the only way to work. So yeah, it's just, it's also just of, not the most efficient based on the technology it's available. Crazy. It's yeah. not, yeah, it's just not the most efficient thing. Yeah. 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 And they, they didn't value, they, I really didn't feel like they valued efficiency, right? I'm actually right. a morning person. I'm not a night person. So I really hated Same. the idea of just being there late for FaceTime. I would get there. I'd be happy to arrive at 7am, but Nobody got credit in the group I was in for being there at 7 a.m. You got credit for being there at 7 p.m. Um, so there was, I just kind of had all these, these things that were bottling up and sort of bothering me and, and really led me to, to believe that this wasn't really necessarily the future, you know, of my generation. And then plus, um, I really did have that belief from 2008 that I really needed to, to own my career in a different way than I had planned to. Um, and so I, um, I wanted to get out before I got too comfortable there. That was really my goal. Um, and I had a friend who it's so funny. You mentioned underscore, um, yeah. my friend Caroline, we worked together at Goldman and we're in the same class and we lost touch, um, after, but she's the one who helped me get to the government, but we reconnected at the underscore summit two years ago. Um, oh, beautiful. Really so we were, both, <laughs> yeah. we were both there. We were both there. Yeah. I think I was nice. there in 2019 or 2018. Anyways. Um, yeah. And she, so she was leaving Goldman in the beginning of, I guess it was 2012, and she was going to work for the Treasury Department. And I was like, that is so cool. My other passion's government. Like, can I go with you? And yeah. she was like, I'm part of a 10 person team. Like, no, but I have this friend who works in city government that I went to college with. Do you want to talk to him? And I said, absolutely. Yeah. And so I went to meet Teddy. Always have who, the conversation. Uh, Exactly. And yeah. it, I mean, it, it really taught me that, you know, you find out, you find out about jobs because of people, right? You find out about, sure. I would have never, I didn't even know what the New York City Economic Development Corporation was. I was thinking in my head, government federal, like I wanted to be in Washington. And yeah. then I learned all about, and then it turns out I fell in love with local government. Like I'd actually much uh, rather work in a city than, than on the federal level. I think and a lot of um, folks say you can drive more change at the micro exactly. level, micro yeah, community I just, level. I just, yeah. Yeah. And so I met Teddy. He told me about the work that they did at the city. Um, my goal was at a Goldman Sachs to just learn about anything besides finance and build a network outside of the halls of Goldman Sachs. I mean, one of my pet peeves too about being there was that uh, they really keep you in that building. And like, I even wanted to be, I wanted to know what being on the subway at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday was like. I mean, yeah. it was just, I wanted a change of pace and I really wanted to expand my network. And, and, um, and I didn't even know that you could do that in a job, but that could, that could be a benefit that you get. And so when I learned that the EDC's job was to really be the public sector partner of the private industries that the city wanted to retain, like in New York fashion or 
media or finance or the industries that the city really wanted to grow, like life science or um, at the time, <laughs> entrepreneurship was an industry. And that's, that's sort of that was that was my role, which kind of just sounds ridiculous the way that we called entrepreneurship an industry 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, I was like, oh, that's so cool. So I can go out and I can meet, you know, we're doing programs in the fashion desk with like Diane Vincent and we're doing programs, you know, when manufacturing with the, uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Like, I just thought like, how cool I'm going to get to like learn a lot more about the city. I'm going to become a better civic citizen of New York, which is another just personal um, goal of mine. And then I'm going to get paid to do all this cool work. And so I made a calculated decision for myself that I was going to take this pay cut. I mean, it was a major pay cut, um, but but I was going to really be able to invest in myself because I really needed that expanded network and expanded knowledge of just what else was available to me. Um, and so my parents didn't get it at first, but then, mm-hmm. you know, when I explained that, it, my dad was like, I totally get that. I, I love sort of the investment in yourself idea. Um, and Teddy, it turned out, had just got into Harvard Business School and I took his job. Nice. <laughs> what I there did. You go. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, and the city was ironically, so I got placed on this thing called the entrepreneurship desk with me and one other person, my boss, and he's still a good friend today. And our job was to figure out how can New York be a more attractive place for entrepreneurs? How can we compete with Boston and San Francisco and make New York not just a great place to start a business, but even bigger problem at the time? How do you convince entrepreneurs that they can grow their businesses? Right. We didn't have a lot of examples. At the time of, you know, I mean, unicorn wasn't a word back then, but Silicon um, Alley wasn't a thing yet. It was that was a thing, but there weren't. It was just becoming a thing. By the way, what a cool job! What a fun, exciting job! I mean, just the luck. I mean, that was the luck part of (laughs) that. That is a cool job. It was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. So I ran like the city's incubator network, and incubators started sort of for tech folks, but then expanded into food manufacturing and media companies and creative arts, um, and uh, definitely other things I'm missing. And then, um, and then I ran competitions. I, we figured out, I ran this competition called Big Apps, which was like, how do you get entrepreneurs to do cool things with city data that had just been opened up for the first time. And I was really lucky to, to be able to, with my timing, to be able to be there for the last two years of the Bloomberg administration, because that was a really, you know, it was a popular government, especially with startups. Like people wanted the city to be in, you know, to be a partner to them, um, which and is kind of was, another thing that I didn't, you know, didn't even think of, like how how the private sector was so interested in government. So I was in a great position. That's that's awesome. And sorry to sorry to interrupt, but I, no, I want no, to I want to make sure I'm I'm tracking the time. So it's 2012, yeah. 2013. Yeah, I was there between 2012 and 2014. So the last okay, all right, years, got I it. Was there for the first few months of the Blasio administration. Nice. That, I, that's fun. That's, that's a, exactly the same time I went through a massive transition where I just like moved to Los Angeles. Um, cool. And then, <laughs> and so that time, so for like what Foursquare was like 20, 2009, 2010. Yeah. So like was Foursquare like, four like an anchor company? Yeah. Like, yep. Oh, general yep. assembly. Oh, my buddy, Anand yep. from BU. You probably met Anand. Um, who ran a lot familiar. of the, he ran like B, he's still at general assembly, I believe. Uh, Chopra McGowan is his last name. It, it and, sounds really familiar. And yeah. they were actually, so General Assembly, I don't know if you remember this, but before they were a pure education business, they actually had a co-working element. I, so I remember were, that's how they moved into LA. Like when they were expanding into mm-hmm. LA from New York, like I had moved to LA and like it was co-working. And then my buddy, you know, I met, I met some really good people through it. Cause like just from co-working and then all of a sudden, like the education component became more of the kind of stable. Yep. 
Yeah. And so that was actually a city. It was, um, the city likes to put in the last money in any project, but the city was actually one of these, um, uh, the investors or, or one of the funders of general assembly. And so I oversaw that contract. Oh, um, I didn't know that. One of our incubators. Yeah. So, oh, cool. so there was, yeah. So union for ventures, right. was a huge, um, huge cheerleader, Fred Wilson, uh, yeah. definitely Foursquare, definitely jungle assembly. I mean, Warby Parker was sort of coming up at that time. Yeah. So there was, you know, that sort of class of like 2010, 2012 startups that have been around now for at least a decade. Um, it was just kicking off and there was a Tumblr was a huge story for New York back then. Um, so there was just an enormous amount of excitement and it really was, which I think is kind of rare for New York. Like we were the underdogs and there was a lot of excitement to that. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, I really think that, you know, Mayor Bloomberg did the right thing and just being a cheerleader. I mean, he would go to like office openings and cut ribbons. I mean, we just needed a cheerleader for that sector and it was really the right um, right person at the right time to to sort of spur the excitement, and then and then really we we cultivated the whole ecosystem around that, which is a really unique um, thing that government has the ability to do, right? Yeah. Um, and I and I think that I think that's going to be a big part of the recovery. I've been thinking about that agency a lot in terms of just all of the opportunities that they have now to contribute. I was um, just going to ask you actually if 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 there's a playbook from 2012 to 2014 that is particularly suited for like New York and Boston and, and cities, generally speaking, you know, whether they're tier one tech cities, you know, business cities like New York and Boston or, or some of these emerging cities like Raleigh, North Carolina, like what are the, like, and are you like, what's your relationship right now with, with, with yeah. the economic development folks in New York and in Boston also like, are there like, and what would be your, like, what would be the lessons from that playbook that you'd like start plotting out now or, or, or think about sort of, or, or recommend, you know, be implemented in the next you know six to 12 months. Yeah. I think there are a lot of playbooks. I mean, I think sort of the conditions have really changed. I think just with the, you know, just issues getting so exacerbated over the last 10 years in cities with inequality and, yeah. and just, the, I think the dynamics and sort of the setting is a lot different than it was 10 years ago. But I think that, um, you know, I think one of the biggest attributes and New York's going to have a mayoral race at the end of this year, which I think is going to be fascinating. But I really think of that sort of cheerleader role and PR role, frankly, as number one. I mean, mm -hmm. the power that we could have putting our name behind something to give it credibility to, um, you know, so, you know, small businesses, entrepreneurs, um, new ventures, incubators, like we had a lot of power in our brand and lending our brand. And so I think that's number one. And that'll, that should always be a really important role of government when they're trying to, um, jumpstart something. Uh, and then certainly funding. I mean, the city can't, does not have all the funding in the world. And, and of course, tax revenue should be really scrutinized and to how it's spent. But, Again, they also have that power to convene. So I think sort of the convene and, and the PR and credibility um, tools that the government have are, are unique to them. And they really need to make sure that they're leveraging those. Um, and then everything can sort of follow. But, you know, those, those don't cost a lot of money, right? Yeah. Um, and they're not really controversial. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a really good, that's a really good point. Well, like, I guess the, Follow up question on that is sort of back to your role now. Um, yeah. It, well, and, and actually, like this is maybe it's it's not it's it's sort of tangentially connected, but with regards to 
what like you've gone virtual, right? And you just had to, yeah. I'd love for you to share like the successful entrepreneurship bootcamp you just had. And like, I think yeah. what was cool for me reading, and I know is I know you're you'll you'll be excited like to kind of share with listeners now, like just the the success and sort of like the breadth of like audience and participation in that virtual bootcamp. And like yeah. is that so like recap that three week entrepreneurship bootcamp and like some of the virtual programming and like the silver linings it's afforded and lessons and takeaways. And then like what from that can we, or, you know, can the trust center, um, and more broadly, can we like the Boston innovation and just like innovation community more broadly, certainly New York included sort of take away from some of the anecdotal evidence and success from your yeah. virtual programming, like into the future, because it, that, there is a nice democratization of, of sort yeah. of like uh, entrepreneurship knowledge transfer going on right now, virtually that I think, you know, yeah. should, should be here to stay. And then, and then to your point about PR, then it's like marketing and, and making sure that that, programming is marketed to communities of people that are underserved, um, in all sorts of ways that they could be underserved. And you could just simply say just underserved in the sense that they aren't exposed or, or sort of introduced to programming typically from say an institution or, or, or an organization sort of like, you know, tied to an institution like MIT. Yeah, for sure. And do you mind if I just fill in the gaps in the rest of my story? Because I don't want people to think that I just went from government street to teaching entrepreneurship. Oh, of course. I really did. Yeah, I did yeah. do the found, you know, I did yeah. do the, the actual operator thing in before. So just really quickly, um, you know, I got to meet all these startups when I was at the city and I ended up going to um, launch and run the New York um, office of a Boulder based real estate tech startup. And, and that made a lot of sense because they were solving a problem that I was trying to solve while I was at the city. And then I continued to operate um, for about uh, three or four years before I met MIT and continue to sort of consult and, and I advise a couple of startups now and and obviously have Craftwalk. So I just, you know, I'm, I've been really lucky to have some really strong brands um, and, and large organizations on my resume. But um, but being part of the, the startup ecosystem in the operator seat is, um, I mean, that's a real blast. And I think everybody should do that in their career because it really does help train you forever for whatever you end up wanting to do. Um, but, uh, and, and, and for the pandemic. Um, yeah. And so to get to your question about Start MIT, which is a three-week introduction to entrepreneurship boot camp that I, I have the privilege of running for the last four years at MIT. Um, and that is really our, you know, our sort of like gateway program. It's, it's for, we say, for researchers who, you know, might want to commercialize one day. It's for people who've had an idea ruminating in their head and don't know where to start. Or my favorite are the students who I can um, convince to come spend a couple of weeks with us, even if they don't know what the word entrepreneurship is and they just want a little bit more information. Right. Um, and so I try to make it as low barrier to entry. The cool part is because it's during you know, MIT's January break, we get a super diverse group of students in the room, everybody from freshman undergrad through, you know, executive MBAs and PhD candidates and masters and everything in between. Um, so it's a really fun program. And it grew to about 160 students this year, which is a, a third more than we typically have. And what it typically is, is we bring, you know, we have a curriculum and we bring a lot of outside speakers in to teach that curriculum to make it different than sort of a true, like, you know, what you get in the semester. Um, you can hear from us sort of any time, but we get all these awesome people from around the Boston ecosystem typically because it's in person. Um, and so this year, I think what the pan, you know, I think what the virtual 
the virtual world has forced us to do is um, to really tighten everything we do, right? It's really painful to spend any more time on Zoom than you need. So I really cut down sort of the live content. I added a lot of network like activities, networking, you know, um, really forced everybody to actually do a project. So to find a team and, and just start start the venture, whether they had intention of actually doing it post-program or it was just for the purpose of the program. Um, and so I think the fact that the program was more dynamic and the content was a lot tighter and there was like a true why for every single speaker that we brought in and it really did lend to enhancing the curriculum was a really fantastic thing. And then, so I think, you know, the tightening and intentionality you have to, you have to have when you're doing any sort of content in these, in these times, I think number two, um, the diversity of people you can get involved, like being able to call in my alumni that are in San Francisco or New York or have some people call in from Hawaii, like that's awesome. And I hope that we continue to um, not limit ourselves to just the people that can drive to, to visit us, but we continue to figure out ways to really um, leverage our entire ecosystem. I mean, at MIT, we have such a global ecosystem and it's such a huge benefit to students given our global audience to, to really get um, an incredibly diverse sort of group of people in front of them. Um, so I'd say those are sort of the two biggest silver linings. And then I think, you know, I think for students, the big benefit I saw this year is that they had a lot less distractions. Like they were, you know, for, for certainly better or for worse, um, you know, whether it's like social distraction or just like total FOMO and trying to do two or three programs at the same time during a, a, a break like that. Um, you know, they were really all all opted in and, and dove in hard to that program. And I think it just was a much better cohesive um, result, not only because the curriculum was tighter, but because the students really, I think, um, you know, when they sign up for something now, like they, they have to really want it. That's great. And I, I forgive me, I was like, getting myself yeah. off the mute. My, it, it, my office companion, my dog was just asking me, I think to go for a walk soon. Um, <laughs> okay. Just a few minutes, Lucky. I have a, I have a wonderful dog who is aptly named Lucky. He's 18 years old. He'll be 19 oh this year. Goodness. And he is like really healthy. Got those strong mutt genes. Um, and then since I'm talking about dogs, shameless plug for the Northeast Animal Shelter, which recently mm. formed an alliance with the MSPCA. That's where my wife works. Oh, I'm one of my best life. friends. And we are... We, I say we, because I'm like part of the team. There's an incredible <laughs> uh, increased uh, transport operation going on to rescue dogs and cats because everyone in this, you know, what's been accelerated in this pandemic, Carly, another trend folks yeah. adopting cats yeah. and dogs, keep them coming folks. We got yeah. plenty of dogs and cats that need homes, especially the older ones. Don't forget the older ones where for whatever due to unforeseen circumstances are in a shelter and they're like five, six, seven, eight years old, they're house trained. They're wonderful. They're called yeah. the un unforgettables. Please give them some love. Uh, look at that little mid roll for the Northeast animal shelter. I love that. She's going to be like, you're such a dork. Um, <laughs> so, um, and we did, we did fast forward through, through some of this. So I actually was going to go back and ask like, you had an interesting, um, interesting time, like kind of opening a, a, a New York office for a business, like in your yeah. role at Pivot Desk. So, I mean, yeah. I, and, and by all means, like if there was anything else in your career you want to go back on, to we like no, I, no, I think we, yeah. we should. But but I I in particular wanted to just double click on Pivot Desk and just 
like yeah. how like I'm like how that came about and and sort of what that what that journey entailed because I think that that's like another trend in Boston that I have heard from a lot of my friends like uh, is a lot of companies around the world like see Boston as a really important um, for the reasons you know that you've kind of outlined like great you know great academic um, community therefore great talent like so a lot of companies from other places want a Boston office and so like I'm curious yeah. like what was pivot that you know describe pivot desk why they need a New York office like what did that entail like I actually think that that is a trend for the future for sort of like how Boston reinvents itself and there's a bit of a you know a vacuum um, that we need to kind of refill in terms of like the commercial real estate and the companies that will sort of populate like the um, empty offices in Boston in the years to come. Mm -hmm. And I think there's plenty of companies that will be doing so. And so sort of talk, you know, I, I, so I don't know if that's, if I'm conflating those things too much no, together, no. but I'm curious, I'm curious, like, what was that, you know, can you share the pivot desk um, sort of experience and like any, any lessons from it? Yeah, it was a fantastic experience, um, especially for my first true sort of startup operating role. And, um, you know, the problem that Pivotus was trying to solve was it was one that we were trying to solve at the city, which was really how do you get sort of landlords and startups to be on the same page? How do you get landlords who usually ask for enormous security deposits, you know, cash that startups don't have, um, sort of make a commitment to a five or 10 year lease when, you know, startups don't know where they're going to be in five or 10 months? Um, like, how do you get those a little bit closer? And so one thing about the real estate industry, which perhaps it'll change now, or the commercial real estate industry in particular, is there's not a lot of behavior change that those folks are willing to make because the economics of that business have really not changed over time. Um, and there's a lot of startups that have tried to make headway in commercial real estate, whether it's to landlords and developers or to brokers or, or some other part of the ecosystem. But I will say, you know, if you're trying to sell something to a landlord or change the way they do business, that's typically been really difficult to do just because there's not a lot of incentive or pain that they're experiencing to, to force them to want to do something new. So Pivot Desk really realized that and said, you know, landlords don't really have to change the way that they're structuring lease agreements. You know, they've got huge tenants that can come take it. Like they don't need to sort of uh, make any special concessions for startups just because they're startups. And so um, Pivot Desk, David Nandalda, the founder and CEO of Pivot Desk said, okay, so if businesses are still going to have to sign leases, let's take those businesses who sign those long-term obligations and help them real right-size their real estate needs. What, because, uh, you know, if you think about it logically, like no commercial sort of entity actually uses their like space 100% efficiently ever, maybe like on for a couple of days, but your, your headcount's always fluctuating up and down really. So said, okay, if you're going to sign that obligation, let us help you offset the cost of whatever excess space you have until you grow into that space. Because companies typically sign bigger leases than they need because they're bullish on the growth of their company. And then vice versa, if there's companies who aren't going to sign leases because they can't pay the security deposits or they're scared to make that long-term obligation, or maybe they're expanding into a new, a new market and just need to test the waters, um, we'll just match those two together. And there's the sublease market has always sort of been there, but the sublease market is actually the one place in commercial real estate that nobody really cares about in the traditional world because nobody really makes money off those transactions because they're short term and small. Um, and so it was this really wonderful sort of marketplace. I say sort of like the Airbnb to, to the hotel of WeWork, um, idea. And, um, 
And New York was a really important market for a couple of reasons, just because of the size of, um, you know, we have the most Fortune 500 companies in New York in the world and the size of the economy and the size of the population meant the volume could be really large. Um, but number two, we were really building a real estate business and we needed to be partnered with the real estate industry whose buildings these transactions were going to be happening in. So New York was really essential to that company for those two reasons in particular. Um, and I had a ton of fun really building New York from the ground up. Um, and it became the, you know, the biggest piece of, of revenue that Pivot Desk had until we sold to, um, a big co-working provider, Industrious, um, in 2016. Amazing. What was, did you guys disclose the details of that exit at the time? We did not. Okay. No, we did not. Um, and it, it's, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was really, it was a great sort of experience to live through. It was about two and a half years and, um, you know, really transparent culture. Uh, you know, David is a really interesting leader and, um, and I learned a lot of sort of, you know, what, what, uh, what good culture can be, what emotional transparency, how it can help companies, something I had never experienced from Goldman Sachs yeah. or the city. Um, and so I really had to sort of, you know, that, that experience really helped me rewire my brain in the way I, in the way I worked because I had to work entirely differently than I did at my previous job. I love it. That's just another example where like from taking the nonlinear career path, you just become more dynamic and more knowledgeable. Yeah. I mean, you're a breadth of knowledge. Like how do like, how do people like, what's the best way like for folks to <laughs> tap into your brain more do you i mean do you use social media like do you are you do you, are you participating in any virtual panels that are upcoming like what like any way like what are good ways for folks to kind of check in with what yeah um, you can Carly definitely, has going def- on? yeah definitely check in with me um on linkedin or twitter you can go to crabwalk and sign up for our newsletter where i blog a, a lot about sort of the, the tools oh, cool. for, for designing a nonlinear career um, and that's a great place to reach me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's something I'm passionate about and I feel really lucky to be able to, you know, I feel like at, at MIT, I have the privilege of sort of like really shaping people's mindset around that at the beginning of their career. And I think if there's anything I hope that I do, I, I hope that I sort of normalize the fact that it's okay. You know, it's okay if you don't know where you're going to be in five years. Like that's the norm. Um, and I, I, again, I, I really believe that that's where our whole sort of society is is going but i think that we're still in a point where that's a new idea for a lot of people and even if they're like me they sort of like get these instincts that like wow i don't think i want to have this sort of like you know one-dimensional career where i stay at the same place or in the same industry um it can be really hard to, to wrap your head around admitting that and then actually especially doing something about that um so it's definitely better to be open to it than to than to be miserable that was tight. That that last riff right there might be what I used to tease the <laughs> tease the tease at the start of this podcast. Um, yeah, I love that, Carly. This is great. And I, should... I am gonna have to go in a second. I'm yeah, sorry. I know. I was gonna <laughs> this say, is really fun. Yeah, thank you for going along with me. Um, yeah, I was, I was. I I seriously think you you match my passion and then some. Um, wow. I love I love the passion you bring to the table. I find it. Um, I find it, I find you to be inspiring and, and I'm definitely going to sign up for the crab walk newsletter myself and, and looking forward to finding ways for, for you and I to continue to um, collaborate in the months in your head. I'm going to have to send David back a thank you for having connected yeah, us. Yes, totally. Year. I totally forgot that was the connection. David is the yeah. best. He's actually going to come speak at my, um, in my class. I'm teaching corporate entrepreneurship in the spring. And 
I was just nice. talking to him about that last week. So I will mention this to him too. Um, oh, cool. If, yeah. As things, if things are opened up too, I mean, I, yeah, maybe I'll come check that out or at some point I'll, I'll, come, yeah. back, I'll come back and visit again. I, For I, look, sure. forward, I look forward to that. Yeah. Thank Hopefully you. I'll be in person in September. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, let's just all let's all keep doing the right thing. Um, yeah. Well, enjoy enjoy the rest of your day in Brooklyn. Thank you. Same. And, and thank yeah. you for for all the time that you gave you gave us. And we're I'm looking forward to, to sharing this with the world. Thank you. I'm excited. I'm excited to get the response to it. Hopefully, hopefully all as well. Um, cool. Well, thanks, Zach. Great catching up with you. All right, Super Carly. Fun. Thanks for having me. Take care. Cheers. Cheers, Boston.